Truth Espresso, episode 229. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello there, friends, family, foes alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, along with my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea. And as we are recording this, it is uh, close to midnight, but we press on and we are going to cover a topic that we weren't originally planning to cover. We were most likely originally going to continue our series on revivals, but something came up this week and we had to devote a lot of study time and action into this. And so we've learned early on in the week that the Colorado legislature was trying to push through, ram through three new abortion bills and they are ones that, at least one of them in particular, potentially can affect pregnancy centers or private women's health practices that are life-affirming. And so, ready to talk about these bills, and in particular, one that's trying to get rid of the abortion pill reversal in Colorado, sweetheart. Yes, and hopefully we don't turn into pumpkins in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because it's likely it's, it's going to cross midnight while we're recording this. But So, do you want to talk a little bit, like a, just a little overview of the what we're dealing with here, sweetheart? Sure. So, earlier this last week, we received an email from the pro-life group that I'm a part of, Heartbeat International. They oversee the abortion pill reversal hotline and just a lot of different pregnancy center work. And so I received an email from them just mentioning that there's a bill that was going to potentially affect pregnancy centers and put a ban on providing the abortion pill reversal and that there were two other pro-abortion bills also in line for this last week. And we started to look into it and we saw that they were going to be presented to the Senate committee this last Wednesday. So we quickly signed up to testify and <laughs> kind of look into see what these bills were going to try and push as far as making abortion available for anyone and everyone. And so one of the bills, I'll bring up the other two bills first since we will be focusing on the one bill that's a lot crazier than these other ones. Okay, so the first bill is Senate Bill 23-189, and this one's entitled Increasing Access to Reproductive Health Care Services. And this bill is basically going around the Colorado's Constitution. So right now, the Constitution in Colorado prohibits the use of public funding for abortions. Yeah. And this bill will go around that and say, like, no tax dollars and funds can go to help with abortions. And in particular, they're trying to increase access to contraception and abortion to minors. And they consider minors anyone under the age of 19. 
So just trying to increase access again to our young people here. Mm-hmm. Um, the second bill that they were bringing forward was Senate Bill 23-188. And this one's called Protecting Healthcare Patients, Providers, and Assisters. So this one was kind of an interesting one. I did listen to this one. Basically, they're trying to protect any abortion provider from being accountable for malpractice, negligence, or even the death of women if an abortion goes wrong. Um, We have an example that they presented during this hearing. Our late-term abortionist, Dr. Warren Hearn here in Boulder, he was sued a few years ago because he had left part of the baby's head inside the mom during the abortion. This was a later abortion procedure when they have to remove the body first. They leave the head in, collapse the brain and the skull and remove that. So part of the baby's skull was left in her. He didn't realize it. The mom goes home and later becomes septic and dies. So the family sued Warren Hearn for this negligence and the death of their family member here. But because Warren Hearn was the only late-term abortion provider in Colorado, they don't have any other medical providers that can stand up and say, yes, that was bad practice. He should be restricted or have a fine or whatever. He got away with it. So he still got to continue practicing mm-hmm. doing abortions. Well, this bill allows providers to be free and clear of any type of negligence, any type of wrongdoing. If a woman dies during an abortion procedure, then there's no retaliation or recourse for the family. Mm-hmm. There's nothing they can do. And unfortunately, we do have a second late-term abortion doctor in Colorado now. He just opened a practice in Pueblo. So with two providers here, they could testify against each other and say that, oh, no, they shouldn't have done that. That's not good practice. Yes. So this bill, I mean, it sounds good, I guess, in some ways, but what they're trying to put with this is going a lot against our First Amendment rights, saying that medical providers and professionals, centers and hospitals, that they need to provide abortion-related services and gender-affirming care. So in other words, if you're a medical provider, you must provide all the services that they dictate. Yeah, and they also have restrictions for employers. So if the employer doesn't want to hire someone who provides abortions or gender-affirming care because, you know, that goes against their religious beliefs or something, then that employer could get in trouble. So it just opens up a whole new level of, oh, okay, so now if I hire anyone to come work with me, I am required to hire someone who provides abortions, even though that goes against what I believe. So that's what this bill is doing, is opening up that side of things. And then the third bill is what we're going to talk into more detail about. So that's Senate Bill 23, the year 23, number 190. And that one has to do with basically dictating or penalizing crisis pregnancy centers or pregnancy resource centers for potentially false advertising. And the language of the bill doesn't seem to be very clear. It used like directly or indirectly deceptive practices. The only part of the bill that seems reasonable is you can't advertise that you offer something and you're lying about it that you don't actually offer that. 
but there's already a Colorado statute for deceptive business practices. And so there's no need for this bill for that. But to target pregnancy centers specifically, and the bill even, wasn't it quoting ACOG, using the term fake clinics, putting that in the text of the bill as name-calling pregnancy centers in the bill itself, you know, that's just ridiculous. But yeah, the bill is definitely biased against pregnancy centers, so putting guidelines about they can get in trouble for false advertising or deceptive practices. And then one of the sections has to do with that the state of Colorado, you can be penalized or lose license. It's, what's the term? Unprofessional. I'm trying to remember, I didn't write it down, but there's a term like have to do with professional misconduct or something for offering, dispensing any kind of drug with the intent or purpose of reversing a medical abortion. So this bill specifically wants to outlaw abortion pill reversal in the state of Colorado. And so in this episode, we're going to kind of walk through the reasoning in that and some of the medical evidence that demonstrates that the abortion pill reversal is safe and effective for reversing abortions. Now, you know, no one's saying it's guaranteed, of course, but it's a reasonable protocol with proven results by the evidence And so, yes, we mentioned that this kind of came up, I think it was at Monday evening that you found out about in an email, and the committee where you can do testimonies was on Wednesday, and so we scrambled on Tuesday to try to write up a testimony for you to give there, sweetheart. So before we go into the abortion pill reversal part of it, I was thinking maybe we could just clarify a couple things with the pregnancy center. That made it so extreme with how they're trying to claim that pregnancy centers are using deceitful or professional misconduct. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they have false advertising. So Mm. one of the senators was trying to understand what they meant by direct and indirectly advertising false information. And so he gave the example like, okay, if there's a billboard that I drive by and it says, Pregnant? (laughs) Unexpected pregnancy? Want help? Call this number. Oh, yes. And he's like, now to me, none of that seems deceitful. Yeah. And then the sponsors of the bill, they clarified like, no, even the word help can be deceitful Mm -hmm. because they're expecting to call that number and get help for their unexpected pregnancy, which would include abortion. Mm -hmm. And if they call that number and abortion isn't offered as a service, then that is considered in this bill to be deceitful advertising. Because they're thinking, if anyone's calling that and they're thinking that abortion is an option, but the number reaches a pro-life center that's going to talk about everything, all of their options, but try to counsel them in a way not to get an abortion, yeah, the sponsor of this bill considers that deceptive because in their minds, any kind of crisis pregnancy situation, abortion must be an option or you're doing medical malpractice or you're deceiving people by trying to lure them into your religion or something like that. 
So they had a couple of women testify quickly about their experience in a pregnancy center saying that they felt like they had to stay there, like they were almost trapped there and felt like the only way they could get out of there was to finally say that they were going to keep their baby and then they felt like they could finally leave. So they felt like they were being held hostage until they came to that point of saying that they were going to keep their baby, which is interesting because then when you hear other people and even, I mean, personally in my practice, when I've had women come to me and tell me their experience at Planned Parenthood, (laughs) that's how Planned Parenthood treats them. They felt like they were forced to have an abortion or forced to take the abortion pill right there in front of them before they could leave. Mm. Not even going there saying, give me the abortion pill. They were just going there to find answers and find out information And before they know it, they're taking this pill and being sent home saying, go to the emergency room if you're bleeding too much. Like, that is not healthcare. That is not informed consent. That's not professional medical practice. Planned Parenthoods, many of the locations are what we could properly consider abortion mills because that's their primary service, if you will. Now, some of them might do some other things or they might refer out for certain services, but their primary service is abortion and that's the primary goal. So that's the other part that's kind of interesting with this is that Planned Parenthood, they're allowed to offer contraceptive care, abortion services. (laughs) I mean, they call it abortion care, but that doesn't make sense. (laughs) So we'll call it abortion services. And some places will offer STI testing and treatment stuff, but not all of them do. But a pregnancy center or a lot of the pregnancy centers now are medical based. Mm -hmm. And so they have a whole team of doctors and nurses and radiologists and medically certified people to offer a whole array of services, whether it's breastfeeding support helping them get mammograms or doing annual exams and prenatal care. And when we talk to women about their options, we include talking about abortion. What would that look like if Mm. you chose that? This is what the procedure is. These are the risks, the complications. That's how they're going to know and make the best decision is if they know what an abortion actually does. So, of course, we're going to talk to them about that. We're not hiding that from them. Abortion is not a taboo word at a pregnancy center. We want them to know what it really is like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's informed consent right there. Yeah. And yes, as you said, pregnancy centers offer a whole array, a complete array of medical services, including free stuff. People donate and they donate free stuff. They'll even follow up with young mothers after birth and for counseling, ultrasounds, As you mentioned, it's like, okay, everything under the sun except for offering abortion. But abortion seems to be the only pregnancy health care option that some of these places think about when they talk about reproductive rights and (laughs) reproductive health care. Yes. And as we're talking about this bill... If we could just ask our listeners to really just pray for our state and our judicious system as there are like the bill is going to the Senate floor on Monday. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. if you're listening to this on Monday, 
when this episode is released today, the Senate floor is debating the bill. They're bringing up amendments and debating the amendments. And we have to predict if God doesn't perform a miracle, the activist Democrats there, radically pro-abortion Democrats, are going to pass this bill and make proper life-affirming medical care difficult in Colorado. Now, it's going to happen. It's going to be done. Pregnancy centers are still going to operate and do what they can working around the attacks of this bill. And there are going to be young women who take the abortion pill and are going to call a hotline. And there's going to be ways of directing them to people who can help them with it. That's not going to stop. But this bill is going to make things difficult. And so, yes, definitely pray. And if you're listening to this on Monday, you could email the senators even this very day in Colorado and tell them, vote no, do not pass this bill. It's dangerous. It takes away the choice of women over their own pregnancies to continue their pregnancy. How is your flame of truth, Christian? Is it burning bright? Hi, I'm Rebecca Bershwinger, creator and host of One Little Candle, a weekly podcast dedicated to encouraging, empowering, and equipping believers to be the light that God has called us to be, so that we may pass down undefiled the truth of God's infallible word to the next generation. So join me and light your own little corner of the world. You can listen to One Little Candle on all major podcast platforms or at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Now, so we did on Tuesday evening, we worked on a testimony and sweetheart, you testified there on the Wednesday committee. And so I'd like to play that. Next, I'll welcome Chelsea Minnick. Please state your name, any organization you represent and proceed to testimony. All right. Thank you, Madam Chair and committee members. My name is Chelsea Minnick. I am a women's health care provider in Colorado, and I am representing myself. When looking at SB 190, two issues come to mind, safety and choice. Safety. The abortion pill reversal uses bioidentical progesterone, meaning it is structurally similar to the progesterone our body naturally makes. This is used to reverse the effects of mifeprestone. Progesterone has been used since the 1950s in both pregnant and non-pregnant women for conditions such as intravitreal fertilization, recurrent miscarriage, postpartum depression. There have been multiple research studies that show there is no increase in birth defects in children born after the reversal. And concerning its use not being approved by the FDA, we have heard that there are many medications that are commonly prescribed and are considered off-label. Uh, working in the OB department, we use magnesium sulfate to slow or stop preterm labor and pre- treat preeclampsia. These are off-label uses. Methotrexate is used off-label to manage an unruptured tubal pregnancy. Natural bioidentical progesterone has been proven to be safe and effective to help support pregnancy and should not be restricted. Just as SB 188 that we previously heard seeks to protect medical providers, 
why is SB 190 seeking to put providers in a state of fear for being able to prescribe progesterone? According to the leading abortion pill reversal hotline, the abortion pill reversal is provided in over 85 different countries and in every state in the U.S. There are over 1,300 providers, clinics, and hospitals that provide this option for women. Lastly, choice. Since when have we become a society that only allows women to have one choice, and we dictate to them what that choice will be? Women should never be forced into making a decision. SB 190 eliminates the ability for women to have a choice, and we become dictators. Please vote no on SB 190. Thank you. Great work there, sweetheart. You gave some truth there at the committee. You talked about the importance of women's freedom to choose to continue pregnancy and the fact that what we're talking about with the abortion pill reversal is progesterone. This is a natural hormone, so bio-identical progesterone to combat the effects of the abortion pill. So after someone takes the first pill in the regimen, which is mifepristone, which tries to block the progesterone from getting to the baby by blocking progesterone from the receptors and essentially kind of starves the baby there. And then the second pill, mesoprostol, is it's a prostaglandin, which it causes contractions. Basically, it puts their body into labor to expel the dead baby. So after taking mifepristone within the 72 hours, the earliest the better is to take a certain dosage of progesterone and for a few days. And so basically that's the regimen for the abortion pill reversal and that providing supplemental progesterone could, and there's lots of evidence that it can not 100%, but it, that's the intention, and it can supplement enough progesterone as the mifepristone basically wears out and to sustain a pregnancy. Good job, baby. <laughs> <laughs> my my, non, <laughs> my non-medical background trying to explain this as I've learned how this works. Oh, <laughs> you must be married to a midwife. <laughs> I'm married to a certified nurse midwife and a women's health practitioner. <laughs> oh. So I thought it was interesting when we had the section of the bill brought up, the abortion pill reversal. I know a couple of the senators listening had never heard of this. And I know a lot of people have never heard, like, wait, you can reverse an abortion pill? I've never heard of that. And I mean, that's part of our goal with our clinic is just to increase awareness that this option is available because Mm -hmm. so many women are forced into making that decision of an abortion. Initially, they could be forced by a boyfriend or a husband or a family member. A lot of times parents are forcing their kids. I mean, not even kids, 20-year-olds. If you don't have an abortion, we're not helping you raise this kid. You'll be out on your own. And they feel so much pressure and they feel like they have to make a decision right then and there. And so they go and do it. And as soon as they take that first pill, then they are overwhelmed with this guilt and regret what did I just do? And they they know, like you know as a woman when there's a baby growing inside of you, 
there's just this God-given insight yes. that there's a human being, there's a life growing inside you, even at that early age of, you know, five to eight weeks. And those women know, and they are usually calling the hotline in tears and just begging, what can I do to stop this? I do not want to hurt my baby. Yes. I was forced into this. And this bill is taking away that woman's choice to be able to try and save her baby. That is so barbaric and so evil. I mean, it's hard to comprehend. But one thing I wanted to point out with this, (laughs) kind of got sidetracked there. A lot of people think that the abortion pill reversal is some sort of magic pill. (laughs) Like, oh, you know, this clinic, they have a special pill they just give women or... No, it's not a magic pill. It's progesterone. (laughs) Bioidentical progesterone. Bioidentical means that it's structured similarly to what our body naturally makes. So it's not going to have a structure to it that's a little bit different like progestin. Progestin. Mm. Synthetic progesterone. Yeah, it's synthetic. It's molecular makeup is off just a little bit that it can actually cause a lot of harm. It can cause miscarriage. It can cause abortion. It can increase your risk for cancers. So progestin is not progesterone. And we are giving progesterone, which has been given for over 60 years. It's been used since the 1950s. And it's used for all sorts of different things. It's used to help women who have had repetitive miscarriages. And now we understand a lot of times a miscarriage is because there's a huge imbalance of estrogen and progesterone, and they need that extra boost of progesterone for their body to continue and carry that pregnancy. Sometimes we use it, oh, it's very common with in vitro fertilization if a couple's going through fertility treatments, that progesterone helps that baby hang on there. And a lot of women have been able to successfully give birth and have these beautiful babies after this. And recently, progesterone has been used even with mood disorders like postpartum depression or menstrual irregularities. So there's so many uses for progesterone because it is something that our body naturally makes, but because we are exposed to so much estrogen, mm-hmm in so many different areas that we tend to be estrogen dominant and estrogen and progesterone they want to be in this kind of balance it needs to be this ebb and flow type of thing with those hormones and so giving that extra boost of progesterone can help with that balance and that helps with a lot of these different disorders and conditions that we see And so we're not talking about some sort of magic pill that we're just all of a sudden trying to throw at these women and see if it works. This is something that has been around. We know it has very few side effects. We know that it works. And yet now all of a sudden, because one of the uses for it is to reverse the effect of the abortion pill, this is being attacked. As you said, progesterone has many uses, one of which is if a pregnant woman is... uh, Having a threatened miscarriage, one of the ways to help with that is to um, increase her progesterone to sustain the pregnancy. That's what the hope is there. And so the abortion pill, mifepristone, as I said, it blocks progesterone from the receptors there to go to the baby. So in a sense, it's kind of like the same thing as trying to prevent a miscarriage. 
And so it's very similar there, but with all the propaganda against it, it's trying to make this a dangerous thing. And what's interesting, I remember listening to some of the testimonies. They're trying to claim that pregnancy centers were trying to shove the abortion pill at people, like trick people into taking it. It's like, I've never heard of that kind of situation They're not like advertising and trying to like trick women into taking a pill or propagandizing about it. Most women who end up taking it, as I said, they call a hotline because they took the mifepristone and then they have that regret. So they look up on the internet, possibly on their phone in desperation. They find the abortion pill reversal, the network Heartbeat International. They call that hotline and talk to someone and what can I do? Then they offer them the abortion pill reversal. They explain what it is. And most women, no one's shoving that out at them. They're looking for something. (laughs) And then that's what's presented. And they want to take that. This is women seeking this. This is not pregnancy centers trying to shove it in people's faces. And, okay, I'll try not to be sarcastic. (laughs) But there are certain big tech companies that have made it um, really difficult for people to find and look up the abortion pill reversal. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, we can't even, in air quotes, push it in their face and stuff (laughs) because there's so many boundaries already set up in place that it's creating that awareness that there's this option has been a huge process anyways. And I mean, just even when we're explaining the abortion procedure as an option, when girls come to find out like, okay, I'm unexpectedly pregnant, what are my options? I'm considering abortion and we go through and tell them what an abortion is and the consequences. That's all we're saying with the abortion pill. We just want them to have that option that they can know that there's something out there that they can do if they choose to do that. We can't force them to do an abortion. We can't force them to take the abortion pill reversal. That has to be their decision. But if they're not getting that information, how can they make that decision? And that is what medical informed consent is, giving your patient that information of what options there are what it looks like on both sides, and then letting them make that choice. And now, what's interesting about this was you're preparing to give your testimony, and I had it written out, and I was doing some research about abortion pill reversal, like effectiveness. I saw on the Charles Lozier Institute website, it was talking about a study and it mentioned the Cranin study. And so I was like, oh, this is good. This was talking about some proposed randomized double-blind clinical trial that involved ultimately 10 patients. So I was writing down stuff and thought maybe, you know, if you get asked questions, because sometimes a panel of people testifying, especially if since you're a medical professional, 
thought that you might get asked questions. So I wanted to try to make sure we're prepared for things. Like if someone brings up this study, oh, we have the statistics here, we can bring it out. So after I wrote down the not long, like with a few minutes after I wrote down some stuff about it, we're watching the panels come up. And then eventually I hear the name Dr. Crane and Dr. Mitchell Crane. And, you know, he's going to start to testify. And I'm like, almost like a double take. Wait, this is the name that I was reading about. And I had read that, okay, even the UK, different countries, as you search for abortion pill reversal from the opposition sides that talk about shoot down the myths. This is not effective. This is not proven. This is dangerous. They will cite the study. So this name, Dr. Mitchell Cranin, is kind of world recognized. And then so I'm like, wait, this is the Dr. Mitchell Crane and right here testifying. (laughs) And so I want to play the clip where he introduces himself. I have several clips of Dr. Crane and and some other clips afterwards, but I want to look at some of the things he said and kind of remark about them. So here's his introduction. Mitchell Crennan, can you hear us? There you are. I can. Thank you for allowing me to participate. I am Dr. Mitchell Crennan. I'm a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist and a board-certified complex family planning specialist and a tenured professor at the University of California, Davis. I am here on my speaking on my own behalf. So kind of remark about that introduction there. He gave his credentials there, and he said that he was speaking on his, his own behalf. He's representing himself. Now, I wanted to point out that as we've researched Dr. Mitchell Cranin, he's not an unbiased person here. You know, he was an abortion provider. But what are we talking about with this bill? We're talking about the abortion pill protocol, which is mifepristone followed by misoprostol. And so one of the primary, like the brand of uh, mifepristone is mifeprex. And that is manufactured by a company called Danco Laboratories. But I found as I was researching Dr. Mitchell Cranin, he is a paid consultant for Danco Laboratories. So he has a vested interest, a monetary vested interest in the success, the studying, the advertising, the proof of the effectiveness of mifepristone. (laughs) So he could say all he wants that he's representing himself, but really, when you think about it, he's representing the company that makes the pill that this bill itself wants to protect from any kind of competition from things like an abortion pill reversal. So how can he be... An unbiased testifier here, if he's going to give his medical recommendations on the safety of an abortion pill reversal, if he's paid by Danco Laboratories for advocating for mifepristone. Yes, so technically he should have provided or stated a statement of disclosure. Yeah, disclaimer Yeah, anytime there's a like you're paid by a certain company and that could cause a conflict of interest in what you're presenting, you're always supposed to give that disclosure to just clarify that. So, yeah, that (laughs) definitely was not good on his part to not disclose that right away. I found several studies that he was involved with. His name is on the list pitching mifepristone in various studies or trials. 
And at the bottom of it, it would have the disclaimer mentioning the fact that Dr. Cranin is a paid consultant for Danco Laboratories, and so it would also mention there's a conflict of interest in this study. (laughs) So next clip, Dr. Cranin talks about what this protocol is about. Uh, I am the only investigator who has ever studied mifepristone reversal. There are only three studies that have ever been published, and all of the prior testimony that related to numerous studies and many uh, people in studies is blatantly false. There are three studies, and that is it. Two of those studies, or what qualify as studies, are simply case reports with less than 10 patients each. There is also my study, which was a randomized trial, which we stopped early after enrolling 12 patients, and that's the evidence, period. So I thought this was a little confusing that he starts off saying that he's the only person who studied this <laughs> in his research study, but then there's two other. So he mentions like two other studies that he claims are insufficient because it only these other studies that he mentions or he acknowledges had like only 10 patients, but they're only case studies and stuff. So he's trying to claim that these two other studies prior to his own are insufficient statistically or methodologically for proving the effectiveness of using progesterone to reverse the effects of mifepristone. And then he mentions his own randomized double-blind clinical trial that he ends up saying that it they had to stop it short because of some effects on some of the patients there. <laughs> well, in that first part, he doesn't even say like why they had to stop it. Yeah, he, just he says, does mention it later yeah. on in his testimony. But yeah, why they had to stop it from his own randomized trial kind of proves too much, I think. <laughs> but when he said that, he was just like, and we had to abruptly stop it. So that proves like this isn't a good thing, basically. And it's like, wait, stopping the study proves that it's not good. So here is his criticism So people before his testimony had brought up the fact that there was a case series study by Dr. Delgado et al. that had at least an initial sample size of 754 patients who had called the hotline and had taken progesterone after taking mifeprestone. And so here's his criticism of that. There is a report with upwards of 750 people that supposedly received mifepristone and then supposedly received progesterone. The problem is that doesn't qualify as a study. And the basis for all of the discussion around mifepristone reversal is tethered on this one report. Well, to reach an evidence level of a study, at the lowest level, a case study or case series, which is what this report tried to be, needs to report on the outcomes for all of the individuals who were included. Not just the individuals had the result that was desired by the investigators. So this larger report of 750 people is not a study because they only reported the outcomes for those people that had continuing pregnancies, which was about 50%, and not the other half. Said nothing about what happened to the other 50% who didn't have the desired outcome. Therefore, it's not a study. 
So Dr. Cranin's criticism of this, because he had before just said, okay, there were the two studies with very few people and then his own randomized clinical trial that had to be stopped short, but this is the one that people have referenced and he says that it doesn't qualify as a study because it didn't meet certain, like he said, it claims to be a case series, but he says that it doesn't qualify to be a case series. It says that case series is the lowest form of evidence of the type of clinical study, but it doesn't even qualify for that because it doesn't report on what happened with the people who didn't get the result. Now, the Delgado case series specified the sources. It mentioned 1,668 calls to the hotline, of which 750 took progesterone after mifepristone. Now, Dr. Cranin mentions the 750 people who took the mifepristone, but the study itself doesn't claim that the 754 are the full set of what they're analyzing the results. That's not the whole set of inclusion criteria. The criteria for the study were those who followed the protocol that they intended. They had to have taken progesterone within 72 hours after mifepristone, and they had to not take mesoprostol to expel the baby or get a surgical abortion, and they had to follow up for continued monitoring for at least 20 weeks of gestation. So that was the inclusion criteria, and that sounds reasonable for a case series study that gives a medication and follows up for a somewhat short period of time. So those who didn't remain in contact during that time frame were not included. Those who didn't follow up after 20 weeks gestation were included because a third trimester miscarriage wouldn't result from the effects of mifepristone from the first trimester. Mifepristone would have worn off by then if the pregnancy continued in gestation. And a surgical abortion, if someone actually chose to do that, that obviously wouldn't disprove that the progesterone was effective. It wouldn't conclude that it was ineffective. So the total who met the criteria of analysis was 547 of that 754 who took the progesterone. Now, of those 547, there were 257 successful births, so that amounts to 47% of people in the conclusion criteria. So after the 47%, there were four additional people who lost contact from the follow-up after 20 weeks gestation. They were included as successful reversals, obviously, because by then, the mifeprestone wouldn't have been active. They were included as successful reversals, but not in the total birth count, even though one would think there is likely a good chance that these were births, but the study was conservative enough not to include them in the birth count. So, the successful births were 47%. The successful reversals, according to the monitoring criteria, was 48%. If you add those four who they didn't see the births, they weren't able to follow up, but they likely were births. So I think it was interesting hearing Heinen's synopsis of the study because he used this word twice. <laughs> supposedly. Yeah. He said, supposedly... They took mifeprestone. Mm. Supposedly, they received progesterone. 
Like we don't go around to medical journals and say, oh, that person is claiming that this group took a medication. So we're just going to say, oh, they supposedly took that medication. I mean, that just, he's just like so adamantly against this article that he's just saying everything about it is false or made up or something. It's just very interesting. And what's kind of neat, because we have been doing the abortion pill reversal since the study came out, and it's become used more often, and they're still collecting information about the success of the reversal, that it's actually closer to 68% effective in reversing mifeprestone. So just in a short period of, I think it's about 10 years, 10 to 12 years of when they started to look at this at first, that now we're seeing like, wow, this does seem to be very effective and that we're first seeing like, okay, it's about 48%. But now with more information coming in and more women seeking this as an option, we're seeing that, wow, that's actually closer to 68% effective. So it's becoming more and more effective as time goes on and the practice is getting more perfected and so then now it's time to ban it, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so that's another part of good medical practice is that you don't just take one study or one sample mm. and say, oh, well, yeah, those were good results, but we're just going to stop. If there's good results, then you keep looking at it and keep looking at it because over time, you're going to learn more about that. And over time, we've learned more that this is effective and that it is safe. Now, if the opposite were true, if there were more hemorrhages or more complications, something like that, you would stop it right away and like regroup. You wouldn't keep harming women to keep going. But that's not what this was showing. This was showing that, no, this is having a positive Mm -hmm. effect on what these women desired, what these women chose. And so we're going to keep doing this and keep reevaluating, like, is this the right protocol? Is this the right dose? And that's how we practice medicine. Yes. Now, as Dr. Cranin was criticizing this, you know, he called it a report and not a study, as he said. And now here's his reasoning. He says, it says nothing about what happened to the other 50% who didn't have the desired outcome. Therefore, it's not a study. So, in other words, because it mentioned the 47% had a birth, but it, yes, it didn't detail, okay, of the ones who didn't have a birth, this happened and this happened to this number of them and so on. Like, so, sweetheart, does that mean that this can't properly be called a case series and it's not a study and it's only a report? Therefore, it's not minimally a medical trial or case study in some way. Therefore, it cannot count as what he called evidence. Right. (laughs) So a lot of times when you're doing a research study, you have to have a focus on there. The focus of this one was to see if the progesterone was effective in reversing mifeprestone and women would be able to carry their babies to term. So that was the focus of this one. If they wanted to look more broad at what happens if we give progesterone to women who took mifeprestone. Then you'd want to see both sides of what happened, like what were the complications from it? What were the benefits of it? So there's so many different focuses that you can go with that. And that's another thing that you look at in research studies. Like, 
And usually at the end of a research study, it will say, this section needs further research, mm-hmm. but this part needs to be looked at more close because it showed good progress or good information on this part, but we need to study it a little bit more. Like usually there's a guide to what you should look at after that. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is with the abortion pill reversal. A lot of times the women that don't have, I mean, I can't say that's 100%, but most likely those other women went ahead and chose to go ahead and terminate their baby. Yeah. Even after they were looking at, okay, I want to call the hotline to see if this is an option. They talk about it and then they decide, okay, no, I'm going to go ahead and go through with the termination. And so it could have even just been they made a different decision. It wasn't that they had a complication. But if that's the case, those people are hard to follow up with and know what happened. Yeah. And this case series here, the Delgado study, does talk about it. gives the statistics for certain ones who went ahead, took misoprostol after the progesterone. It mentions those and didn't include them in the final result. So the qualifications were you take the progesterone within the time frame, the 72 hours, and then you're followed up. And if you successfully go through 20 weeks gestation in that time frame, then it evidences that the progesterone stopped the mifepristone effects, possibly. So that's what it was about. And so even if someone later on, if someone got an abortion after the 20 weeks gestation, that was still included in the reversal success because what was the point of it? it was proving that the progesterone reverses the mifepristone. That's what this was about. Mm-hmm. But he, uh, Dr. Cranin claims that because it didn't describe in detail what happened in the other, you know, not the 47%, but the others, what specifically happened with all those therefore it doesn't qualify to be a case series and a case study is the lowest form of evidence so if it's not up to par with that because of his criteria there it can't be counted as professional medical evidence and therefore you slash it from the record that's what his point is and so he's only counting those two studies before and his randomized trial and he says that's the evidence period So I personally think that the way Cranin did his study, because he did the double-blinded controlled study, he had the placebo group. These were women, five women, who received mifeprestone, and then they didn't have anything else after that. So they didn't get progesterone, and they didn't have the misoprostol. Mm -hmm. Then the other five ladies, they had taken mifeprestone, and then they took progesterone to see if that would reverse it. Now, to me, that is ethically not okay to experiment with giving a medication that could potentially help versus not giving them anything when there's good evidence that mifeprestone by itself causes a lot of complications. Mm. So I think his study was very unethical. And I could play a clip because he talks about that. So like, yeah, it was unethical. And the Delgado study, it says at the end in the conclusions, this study is limited in that it is not a randomized placebo-controlled trial. However, a placebo-controlled trial in the population of women who regret their abortion and want to save the pregnancy would be unethical. 
And yes, as you said, because <laughs> Dr. Cranin himself talks about the problems allegedly of not giving misoprostol after mifepristone, but his randomized controlled trial did just that. So yeah, as you said, sweetheart, wouldn't that be unethical? And now the numbers of that trial were small enough. He said he had to stop it because of the complications. And so it was inconclusive. But his own study did show, even if it's only three versus two, the three with progesterone did better than two without it. And one of them recovered without needing treatment in the ER who got progesterone and versus the ones who didn't get it. One of them had to have a transfusion. So his own test evidence that the progesterone was helpful, more helpful, but, you know, he did say that it's just not enough to evidence anything. It's like too little. So I'm trying to remember with his testimony there, it seemed like at first when he just gave like his initial testimony that he was saying that his study proved that it's bad and ineffective and like this just should not happen type of thing. And then the more he was being questioned or asked to provide more information, then eventually he came out with, okay, yeah, it's inconclusive. (laughs) So it's kind of like he's trying to come right out and just say, oh, my study shows that it's not good. But then he's kind of pinned in a corner like, wait a minute, (laughs) you can't say from this that it's not good. And so then he kind of recanted and said that, okay, it's just inconclusive. So let's see what he says about the safety of the abortion reversal protocol. So all of this discussion is about a treatment that is purported by anti-abortion clinics to be proven and effective, and there are no studies to do so. So this is misleading. This bill is about medical fraud, and that's all it's about. It's not about when life begins. It's not about abortion. It's about the ability of clinics to move forward with medical fraud, and that's just not right. And then the study I attempted to do, keeping in mind that mifepristone and mesoprostol together are very effective, very safe, very well-proven uh, treatment with a death rate that's lower than Tylenol, a death rate that's lower than Viagra, right? So, Let's get the safety really clear what the combination of the two drugs represents. So he's saying that the full protocol, mifepristone with the follow-up misoprostol, is safer than Tylenol and Viagra. Like, statistically, the death rates per percentage of patients for taking that is safer than how many people may have died from taking Tylenol or Viagra. (laughs) And there were other doctors that came on afterwards and questioned that because that's not accurate either. So quickly, the misoprostol, or he talks about how that's dangerous. So in a small study, all we could say is that when you give mifepristone by itself and you don't give misoprostol, bad things can happen. So, yeah, that's where you talked sweetheart about it. Wouldn't his randomized study kind of be unethical if he knows it's likely in his understanding that giving mifepristone, not giving progesterone to some people and not following it up with misoprostol is dangerous. So he admits it's dangerous, but okay, did these women have to sign a waiver that I could die from this? Now, here he calls the abortion pill reversal fraud. And the FDA allows off-label treatment, 
if you tell the patient it's off-label and if there's adequate medical evidence to prove it's effective and safe, and none of that exists for this. So any claim that this treatment works, any claim that it's safe or effective is misleading and medical fraud. So basically, and this goes back to his understanding of, did this case series really qualify as a case series? It doesn't, according to his criteria. Therefore, it's slashed from what counts as evidence. Therefore, to actually make it a practice to give the abortion pill reversal because it doesn't have the proper trials that he considers backing it up, it's fraud to say that it's safe and effective. <laughs> like that is his reasoning there. And don't you think he might have a motivation to call this fraud when he's on the payroll of the company, the laboratory that makes uh, Mifepristone? Are you living an abundant life? Jesus came to give us eternal life, yes, but also an abundant life here and now, overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit. The Abundant Life Podcast encourages and challenges Christians to spiritual change and growth by applying biblical principles to everyday life. Podcast hosts Sasso Mendez and Ben Ariano discuss various topics that are helpful for Christians and true to the scripture and bring a generous dose of humor. Visit AbundantLife.fm and subscribe to get notified of each new episode. That's AbundantLife.fm. And now he explains how mifepristone works and why progesterone would not be reliable to reverse its effects. There is no medical sense that by giving more progesterone that it's going to reverse the effects. If I have you in a really tight bear hug and I am able to hold that bear hug for 24 to 48 hours, and you just put more people around me who want to give you a hug, does that mean I'm going to let go? No, it doesn't. So that's the idea of what happens between mifepristone and progesterone. So giving more progesterone doesn't displace mifepristone from the receptors. It doesn't make it come off. It doesn't make any medical sense that it could work. So <laughs> taking mifepristone is like someone giving you a tight bear hug for 72 hours and giving progesterone is like people wanting to hug you, but they can't because it won't let the bear hugger let go. So sweetheart, does mifepristone necessarily block all the receptors <laughs> for progesterone mm. to get through? And then also, yes, even if it happened to do that, does that still mean that progesterone can't counter the effects of mifepristone? I'm so glad you asked me this because <laughs> this part really <laughs> frustrated me. This is like basic pharmacology information. Receptors have specific receptors too. They have a specific affinity, like a desire or attraction to the chemical or medication or hormone, whatever it is, they are attracted to each other. Like they want to come together and they fit perfectly. And that's how God made our body like this. So in pregnancy, when you have the placenta developing, there's tons of progesterone receptors and then the progesterone's released and they come and connect with those receptors and that keeps telling the placenta to keep growing and keep sustaining this pregnancy. And mifepristone, when that's given, it can attach to the progesterone receptors, 
but it's not designed to have that affinity Hmm. connection with it. So if progesterone comes along, and especially when there is more progesterone, that progesterone receptor is going to have that desire, that affinity for the progesterone, because that's what it wants. That's Mm. what it's designed to connect with. So I'm not sure if it totally lets go of the mifeprestone to attach to the progesterone, or if there's like part of the mifeprestone still on there and the progesterone can attach to it and kind of take over what the mifepristone was trying to do. I'm not quite sure like how that part of it works. And then the other question you had, there are lots of receptors. I was trying to find like if there was a number, but they said that the number of receptors that um, it varies for pregnancy and what stage of pregnancy it is. So I can't really find a good number, but there are a lot. So it's not that every single receptor is going to be filled and blocked with mifeprestone. Mm. And that's kind of the other part of it too. The earlier you give progesterone, the more likely you're going to have a successful pregnancy because the mifeprestone is kind of like the turtle (laughs) making its way to those progesterone receptors because the progesterone is not calling it. It's not saying, come here, here's the receptor here. And the progesterone gets in there. The progesterone receptors are like, oh, your progesterone, come this way, come this way. I want you. (laughs) So it pulls the progesterone closer and faster. And so that's kind of where the earlier we can get that going for the woman, then the more likely she is to be able to combat those effects of mifeprestone and carry her baby. Do you think Dr. Crane, and as a medical professional, understands what you just said there? (laughs) (laughs) That's a loaded question. I think he understands it. I think he just wants to deny it. Oh, yeah. So then I was going to say, so then do you think he's being a little dishonest with his analogy there? Yes. I think his whole testimony, his whole case study was all about an agenda being dishonest and trying to ban any good that could come from trying to help these women save their babies. So Representative Bob Gardner, then after Dr. Cranin's testimony, if any other legislature determined that the abortion pill reversal was fraud and outlawed it, or if any court had ruled such, Dr. Cranin said that not in the United States, but other countries. Then Gardner pressed him for which countries, and Cranin said the UK. That's all he can think of. Which is interesting because the abortion pill reversal is in 86 different countries (laughs) and in all 50 states in the U.S., So it is like out there and everywhere. So for all 86 countries, there's only one that is saying. (laughs) Just Colorado as this bill. Gardner then also asked Dr. Crane, and if it's possible in the future for abortion reversal be discovered and proven, but passing in law prohibition against it might complicate the research. So he asked him, is it possible in the future? And Dr. Crane admitted, well, yeah, it's possible, but we don't have that yet, according to his understanding. But then it's like, well, if we don't have that yet, why would you block that with a law saying you can't give a medication abortion reversal? 
But Dr. Cranin called the abortion pill reversal fraud, and so since there is no fact, as he called it, in his understanding of clinical trial criteria, there's no fact according to his understanding of studies, then therefore it's medical fraud, and it's appropriate for medical boards and the legislature, as he said, is his preference for medical boards and legislatures both to outlaw what the bill says, quote, administering dispensing, distributing, or delivering a drug with the intent to interfere with, reverse, or halt a medication abortion, unquote. So in, I remember that he clarified, and I know this was brought up with some other questions earlier, like, okay, what is the consequence of someone giving the abortion pill reversal? And he, they're like, okay, it would be medical discipline. So like, okay, what is medical discipline then? I know Cranin kind of explained this too, but basically they want you to have your medical license revoked, have a hefty fine. I know, like someone mentioned, most of the time fines like this would be $100,000. And then you would also have the potential of jail time as well. So they want to really make it a criminal act to try and offer progesterone Hmm. to women who want and choose to try and save their baby. And even people opposing the bill quoted from last year's radical abortion bill against this bill because it said that women have a fundamental right, of course, to abortion, but also to continue a pregnancy. So people would quote that, wait, didn't last year we pass a bill that said women have a fundamental right, as if it's inscribed into nature itself, to continue a pregnancy. So women who want to reverse abortion are exercising their fundamental right to continue a pregnancy. But they want to make it so that, hey, sorry, you take mifepristone unless your body just somehow manages to get through the effects and it's dangerous without taking misoprostol, which will expel the baby. Yeah, so basically it's a forced abortion here. Andrew Rappaport's Rap Report is a podcast providing biblical interpretations and applications. It is a ministry of striving for eternity and part of the Christian podcast community. We provide a biblical view of cultural events, discuss how to apply God's word to the Christian life, address issues that concern the church, and we even take some time to offer a correct understanding of those commonly misinterpreted passages of scripture. You will hear from great guests like Justin Peters, Todd Friel, Jay Warren Wallace, and Gabe Hughes. Andrew has the Rap Report Daily, which is a two-minute Monday through Friday podcast, and then the longer Rap Report podcast for more content. Subscribe to both today by searching for Rap Report on any podcast app, spelled R-A-P-P, Report, or click the podcast link at strivingforeternity.org. So now I want to get to two other people, which this really makes things interesting. It kind of sheds some light on Dr. Cranin's propaganda here. So a clip from Dr. Tom Perrill, who is president of Democrats for Life of Colorado. He's a specialist in internal medicine, and he had some pretty good response later to Dr. Cranin. What Dr. Cranin neglected to say is that There's a plausible biological mechanism which has been proven in animal research. It's been demonstrated that that progesterone uh, given to rats reverses the effect of mifepristone. Instead of a 33% uh, 33 continuing pregnancy rate with progesterone, the rats had 100% continuing pregnancy rate. The other thing that he forgot to mention is that there's a randomized 
double-blind placebo-controlled trial using uh, progesterone, a different progesterone, after actually giving mifepristone and misoprostol. And it demonstrated that there was four times the chances of a continuing pregnancy, which met the statistical uh, criteria for that study to be uh, considered significant. So we have animal data. We have a scientific mechanism. We have a randomized controlled trial demonstrating proof of principle. And then we have the large case series, which Dr. Krein had mischaracterized. They do follow the patients. There's not, uh, it was published in a journal that is uh, not mainstream because ACOG and others control the, the process and you cannot publish it in that way, but it demonstrated a much higher uh, success rate for continuing pregnancy compared to historic controls, which uh, is significant evidence. And since the uh, APR is safe based on a Cochrane review, which is a much better arbiter of safety of medicine than Dr. Krynan in this situation, it says that there's moderate certainty that progesterone is safe, and because it saves a life potentially, any evidence-based physician would recommend APR for their patients who uh, thought they made a horribly wrong decision. So I think that was pretty good and pretty revealing because he mentioned studies that Dr. Cranin didn't seem to include in the evidence period, as he called it, including a randomized clinical trial there, which gave progesterone even for those who took misoprostol afterwards. So there's a study that he rejected. He mentioned the rat study, and then I'll have a clip about that from someone else who's from Heartbeat International that really sheds some light on that. Yeah, so we already have anything to add about what he just said there. I thought he did a good job and really highlighted what that this was definitely an agenda-based presentation that Dr. Krynan gave. And I liked how he pointed out this is evidence-based information and this is what we can offer to women. And we don't tell them that this is going to work 100%. We have to tell them like right now we have a 68% effective rate. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still looking at this and we go through all that information. I mean, progesterone, to me, it's just so weird. It's like, okay, if you get a cold and then you're like, hmm, vitamin C might help me fight this cold off better. (laughs) If I take it, I might be better faster. If I don't take it, I'm going to suffer for a few more days. Like, wouldn't you take it because you want to try and feel better? Like progesterone, we're not saying progesterone is something that's going to harm you. It's not something that's going to potentially kill you like the abortion pill medication does. This is something that your body naturally makes. We're just helping give it that extra boost in hopes because this is what the mom wants to mm-hmm. carry her pregnancy. Exercising her fundamental right to continue the pregnancy as the radical pro-abortion bill from last year outlines. Yes. <laughs> And Dr. Tom Perill mentioned the rat study. So there is a rat study of two groups that showed the ones who didn't have progesterone that took mifepristone, a third of the, the pups survived, but the ones with progesterone, 100% of them survived. And then also in the non-progesterone group, the survivors had some physical alterations in their babies, but the progesterone, the 100% survivors uh, group did not 
have any alterations. So that, at least in rats there, it demonstrates, you know, the power of progesterone and if reversing the effects of mifeprestone. And now about that rat study, not long after Dr. Tom Peril, there is a Dr. Charles Brent Bowles, who's an OBGYN with more than 30 years of practice there. And he did also, I think, about 20 years of private practice. He's a medical director of the Abortion Pill Reversal Services for Heartbeat International. And so here's what he mentions about the animal data. The animal data that the previous physician mentioned is highly convincing, and every abortion pill um, medication abortion researcher knows that data exists. It was part of the research to develop mifepristone in the first place. (laughs) So that really shed some light on this. So riddle me this, Batman. <laughs> so in the process of developing mifepristone, or these rat studies, were they studying how well the mifepristone works? Then how, okay, this is what progesterone does to reverse it, but mifepristone, this is how it affects, and this is how it prevents rat babies from being born? So Dr. Crane and other people who are involved in mifepristone, they're aware of these rat studies and how it demonstrates that (laughs) progesterone works. And yet they're not talking about it here. They're not using it as evidence. There seems that they're suppressing this as evidence that progesterone really works. And so Dr. Charles Brent Bowles here makes a very poignant point here that they know it because (laughs) that proves that the abortion pill reversal is statistically safe and effective with this rat study. But this rat study was a part of the development of Mifepristone? Like, it sounds like there's a lot of cover-up going on here, wouldn't you think? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and we can see multiple different medications in recent years, too, that there is a lot of cover-up, unfortunately, in the medical fields, and that is where fraud needs to (laughs) be spoken out and looked into and not when there is good evidence that this is something that's safe, it's something that's effective, and this is trying to help and not trying to harm, and we're not trying to cover anything up. So Dr. Crenan knows what he's doing. All of these pro-abortion people who work in the medical field know what they're doing. They know what they're fighting against. They know that the evidence that the abortion pill reversal is safe and effective. Now, not 100%, of course, it's getting better, but they're fighting against truth. They want truth suppressed. That's why they want to outlaw it. And so this is a battle between good and evil. And yes, as Colorado is poised to basically gag pregnancy centers from being able to advertise effectively and help, you know, reach out to women that they could be possibly prosecuted for false advertising just by trying to help women and be the first contact that they have when they're in a crisis pregnancy situation and they don't steer them towards abortion. SB 23190 could hurt pregnancy centers that way and also to try to outlaw giving progesterone, a natural hormone, to reverse the effects of mifepristone. This seems like an activist 
attack to outlaw something that they know is effective. And the studies show it. And it seems that they want to suppress that. Well, I think it was very evident what their goal is and that they're not even trying to hide their distaste for the pro-life movement nor for life of the unborn. When at one point, one of the senators was asked, does abortion end the life of a human? And she very quickly and very adamantly said no. And that's true. She just believes that the unborn is not human and she doesn't care about them. And like to her, abortion is just a matter of a woman's right. And we know that to be a lie. And um, that's why it's so important that we stand up against this lie. And, you know, even an OB doctor was asked the same question. And her response was that she couldn't answer Mm -hmm. if abortion kills a human being, because that is a philosophical question. (laughs) Oh, that seems like a scientific question, because if I recall at the University of Boulder, there was a Dr. David Bowden who wrote a book basically chastising his fellow pro-abortion medical professionals from shying away from saying that life begins at conception and that abortion is the taking of a human life. And he's radically pro-abortion. And his point was that from a philosophical standpoint, it is the right of someone to terminate a human life inside them. So he said, we have to come to grips with it. We have to admit, we have to stop beating about the bush. Life begins at conception, period. And it's a human living baby inside, but our position should be like that of Judith Jarvis Thompson and the uh, unconscious violinist, basically. We talked about that in a past episode on an abortion series, but basically that's how we should look at abortion. Like we're exercising a philosophical right to kill a human being because we have the right over that. And so, yes, he says, yes, you're taking a human life. This person, OBGYN, you know, said, oh, well, that's a philosophical question. It's really a scientific question. And you mentioned the other one who said, no, flat out, no. Well, last time I checked, yes and no are not the same thing. <laughs> so some will say yes, some will say no, but the like, how can you take yes and no and arrive at the same result? That therefore, abortion is a fundamental human right based on yes, based on no. I just was thinking of this Bible verse that I read recently to kind of end this because this is a heavy topic yeah. and it can just be frustrating to see what we're becoming, like what is going on, what's being debated, what's being talked about. So for some reason, this verse just stood out to me. Proverbs fourteen twenty seven it says, The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. So when we have that respect, we have that acknowledgement of God and who he is, there's life, there's a fountain of life. And that helps us to depart from that snare of death. And it's sad when you think about these people that are promoting death and promoting abortion here, they are in this position because they deny God, they deny who he is. And of course, they're going to be like promoting this because they have no truth. And this verse is saying, if they know who God is, they fear God, then that's going to pull them away from the snare of death. But when they don't believe there's a God, they can't fear him. 
and they're going to be trapped in that snare of death and they're going to be promoting death. So hopefully this is an encouraging verse to just remember like when we fear the Lord, we respect him. We know like he is our God and that he's ultimately going to be the victor in Mm -hmm. all of this, that we have that hope. Definitely, sir. That's a good verse to encourage us because I know this this does seem very discouraging because, you know, as, as I said, the votes to pass this bill into law in the state of Colorado, it's pretty close to 100% it's going to happen as we record this. And so God gets the victory. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, what hope do you have if you really are on our side of this issue? You don't know if there truly is a victory, but we know God will get the victory. And these are dark times. We ask you to pray for the state of Colorado and pray for Chelsea and her family as we try to help women in whatever way we can with the attacks of Satan going on here with these bills. We know that women will get helped. We will help them. I know that pregnancy centers, Heartbeat International, they're going to think, they're going to figure out how to handle these situations should these bills get passed. We'd like to say that God will perform a miracle in not passing them, but whatever happens, we are trusting God with this. And so if you're listening to this Monday morning and you know, we'd encourage you to call the senators of Colorado and tell them not to pass this bill email them we'd appreciate your help in that matter and stay tuned for the next episode of truth espresso and god bless thank you for waking up with truth espresso good morning and god bless your day hey friends daniel minnick here again if you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.